This morning we're looking again at the prophet Micah. We're making our way towards the beginning of Micah chapter 5 where the prophet gives the location of the birth of Messiah 700 years before it took place. But this morning we are looking at the immediately preceding verses at the end of chapter 4. I'll be reading verses 6 through 13. Please give your attention to God's word. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. As I this week watched the reports of the shootings in Newtown, Connecticut, I thought about the prophet Habakkuk. Habakkuk began his prophecy with these words, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. How long, O Lord? I know in my life it's been a long, slow process of disillusionment as the world around me seems to get darker and darker and more twisted and more unjust and, yes, more dangerous. A few months ago, I bought a digital antenna for my television because I didn't want to have to have cable in order to get anything on my TV. And one of the benefits of getting the local channels over the air is that there are a couple of the channels in the area that have oldies channels. They have their regular channel, then they have kind of an oldies channel where they play all the old shows and sitcoms from the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s, I think, would be the most recent. 
And it's really been fun for me to, for the first time in decades, to see some of the shows that I used to watch faithfully and regularly when I was a kid. Shows like Leave it to Beaver and I Love Lucy and Dick Van Dyke and The Lone Ranger and Daniel Boone. But it's really been kind of a bittersweet thing, though, to see these shows again, to realize how much my perspective has changed since I used to watch those things. And I, as I watch them now, I realize how those shows portrayed really an idealized, fictional, sanitized version of American life and reality. And so part of the disillusion for, disillusionment for me is to now, in hindsight, having grown up and looking back on that time, realizing that things weren't nearly as clean-cut and simple and happy as those shows portrayed them. But even more disturbing has been to realize, to look back at how much the culture, the world around me has changed since I was watching those programs. Spiritually and morally speaking, cultures are a lot like individuals. As a group of people reject the truth, as a group of people, as a society, gives themselves over more and more to sin, their hearts, their collective heart, becomes hardened. Spiritually and morally speaking, And so it should not surprise us that the evil and the darkness and the perversion around us only increases day by day, week by week, year by year. I mean, just think back over the last 12 years. We had Columbine, the Amish school shootings, Virginia Tech, now Sandy Hook Elementary. And I hate to say it, barring revival, an outpouring of the Spirit of God upon his church and then upon this nation, it's not likely to get better. It's likely to get worse. And so we say with the prophet Habakkuk, how long, O Lord? We're allowed to pray that. Habakkuk was not rebuked for asking how long. Matter of fact, if you go to the book of Psalms, the book of Psalms, I'm convinced, was given to us to teach us not only how to sing and praise God, but given to us to know how to pray. If you aren't studying the Psalms regularly to know how to pray, then you're missing out on one of the primary textbooks for how to pray. But what's interesting is that I counted it up 20 times in the book of Psalms, that phrase is uttered, how long, O Lord? Not only are we allowed to ask that question of the Lord, we're encouraged to ask that question of the Lord. How long do we have to watch evil dominate? How long do we have to watch the suffering? How long do we have to bear the results, the consequences of the sins of others? How long do we have to bear the consequences of our own sins? What's interesting, though, is even though the Bible encourages us to pray and to plead that question, it's the one question that the Bible doesn't answer. You cannot go to Scripture to find out how long. 
Matter of fact, our Lord Jesus said to us, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So even while we're encouraged to cry out to God and to long to know how long, that's the truth that we're not given. But we are given the truth that we need. And that's the encouragement I have for you this morning after a dark and discouraging week. Is that we are given the truth that we need to endure dark, twisted, and evil times. We can know the crucial truths. And that's really, in God's providence, what the end of Micah 4 is about. I chose this passage a long time ago to be preaching at this time. had no idea it would line up with the events that we had to witness in the last few days. But as we said last week, Micah the prophet was sent to the people of God, the people of God in the southern kingdom of Judah, after the northern kingdom, or as the northern kingdom, was being wiped out and defeated by the kingdom of Assyria, Micah and Isaiah were sent to Judah, to Jerusalem, to give truth to to God's people, to get them through what was to come. And they, as we saw last week, were on the verge of some very dark days. Assyria was about to march right up to the gates of Jerusalem and threaten to extinguish them. And even though they would be delivered by that through the righteous prayers of Hezekiah, still it would only be another couple of generations before Jerusalem would be destroyed and God's people in Judah would be taken away into captivity in Babylon. And last week, in the beginning of chapter 4, we saw how the spiritual and civil leaders of God's people had let them down. Had Not only had they not protected them and led them into truth, but they had misled them and perverted and, dis- and distorted the government, distorted the church of the day, led them into spiritual darkness and moral depravity. Their prophets, their priests, and their kings had led them astray. But we saw in the beginning of chapter 4 that God pointed them to a great prophet, a great priest, a great king who was to come. The Messiah, the promised one, who would establish a new Zion, a new Jerusalem. And that new heavenly Jerusalem would draw seekers from all nations, coming, wanting to know the truth, wanting to find out what real righteousness and justice is. And where they could find true peace and prosperity. Where they could rest contentedly under their vine and fig tree. That's the crucial truth that Micah lays before a people that not only are suffering in days of darkness, but are looking forward to darker days to come. Look at verse 6, first verse we read this morning. He points them to hope. He says, in that day. What day? The day he's just described in the first five verses. The day of the new Jerusalem. The day after Messiah has come to establish his kingdom. The day when truth and peace and prosperity are available to people from all nations. In that day, Micah says, we are to live with our spiritual eyes focused on that day. 
We're to wake up every morning before we go out to face a fallen world filled with sin and darkness. We are to begin with our eyes focused on that day. God's deliverance. The future that God has in store for his church and for the world and all of its rebellion. Our hope at times like this needs to be in the Lord's plan for our future. In this passage, Micah talks about two gatherings. Two gatherings. One gathering that's going to happen after the captivity. After they suffer for 70 long years in captivity, there's going to be a gathering. And Micah points us to that gathering first. And then at the end of this passage, he points to a second gathering. And that gathering will be at the end of time. Let's look at the first one, the gathering of the lame. Let me read verses 6 and 7 again. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant, and those who are cast off a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. This is tapping into one of the great promises of the covenant. That even in the darkest of times, there will always be a faithful remnant. God will always have a people. Until the end of time. And even though the people of God have flourished in some ages and suffered and been decimated in other ages, there will always be a faithful remnant because God has promised that he will preserve for himself an elect people in the midst of every age, even the darkest of age. One example of these prophecies is Jeremiah 23 verse 3. Where the prophet Jeremiah says, it speaks the word of God, where God says, I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. No matter what the state of the visible church, whether the church of the Old Testament or the church of the New Testament, no matter what the state of the visible church in the world, there is always going to be an invisible church that is walking by faith and serving the Lord, and being preserved by the Lord. But look at how he describes this gathering of the faithful remnant. I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away. And the lame I will make the remnant, those who are cast off. This is a consistent teaching of Scripture, that the remnant is made up of the outcasts. Not of those who are perceived by the world to be strong and self-reliant and capable, but those who are perceived by the world to be weak and downtrodden. And he uses the word lame for them here. And of course he doesn't mean literally that everyone in the remnant will be literally lame. He's speaking spiritually, morally, in, in their hearts. Lame before the Lord. That word is actually a rare word in Hebrew. It's interesting. It's only used three places in the Old Testament. One place is in another prophet, another one of the minor prophets, where the prophecy is is describing exactly the same thing that Micah is describing here. But the first time that the word lame shows up in Scripture, and the only other time it shows up in Scripture, is in Genesis 32 in the story of Jacob, where Jacob wrestled with the angel through the night. And it says that, As 
Jacob grasped onto the angel, would not let him go until he blessed him. At the end of that night of wrestling, it says that the angel touched his hip and made him lame. Made him so that he had a limp. It literally means to have a limp. And that limp that Jacob lived with from that point on was a reminder to him that even though we are to wrestle with the Lord, to grasp for his blessing, it doesn't come through our strength. It comes through weakness. It comes through submission. It's interesting that Jacob, at that in that event, when he was made lame, when he was given a limp, at that point he was given the name Israel. That's a new name. And the message is clear that those who are of the true Israel, those who are of the of, of Mount Zion, of Jerusalem, of the invisible church, the truly elect people of God, those are the people who are limping, who are broken spiritually. People who do not rely upon their own strength, but who depend upon the Lord. So every promise that we talk about in this passage is given to those who, spiritually speaking, have a limp. Who have been taught by the Lord to depend upon Him and not to rest and rely upon themselves. People who were at one time like Jacob, proud and deceitful, but now trusting in God for their peace and prosperity in life. People who are truly humble and dependent. The Lord calls this faithful remnant those whom I have afflicted. Not people who limp because life has dealt them a hard lesson, but people who accept their affliction as coming from the Lord, who have been broken by the Lord, that they might be humble and learn to be dependent upon Him and upon His grace. People who accept hardship and suffering and difficulty as a, as a disciplining hand from the Lord, teaching us to be humble and dependent. I stand in the middle of a room full of very intelligent and capable people, but never lose sight of the fact that you are where you are in the kingdom of God because you have been broken, because you have refused to depend upon your own strength. You have not sought through your own self-reliance, peace and prosperity, but you have humbled yourself before the Lord, received his grace and daily you need to depend upon him. And so I would ask you as people who the world might look at as capable and self-reliant and accomplished, are you daily depending upon the Lord? Are you limping through life depending upon the Lord? Does your prayer life reflect it? Do you need to pray every day as you serve the Lord in the midst of this evil and darkness? Do you need to be in the Word every day in order to have wisdom to walk uprightly in this fallen world? Do you need to be in the fellowship of God's people in order to walk the way of truth? Do you need the Lord? Does your life reflect it? Or does your life reflect that the Lord is just an add-on? How you spend your Sunday morning? 
If you're tired and weary today, if you're beat up and exhausted, if you're stressed out, then you need to recognize that you were created to limp and to depend upon the Lord. To find your strength and reliance upon Him. It says in verse 7 that this limping remnant would be made into a strong nation. But that strength is something that's going to come from the Lord and not from within us. But as we talk about this gathering of the limping and the lame, I want to point secondly to the groaning and labor that goes on during this, this gathering stage. Look at verse 9. He compares the remnant's cry for justice and deliverance, the, the cries of how long of the remnant. He, he compares those cries to the pain, the cries of pain that a woman makes when she's in labor. Now, this part of the sermon might be difficult for some of you in the room who have just been through this recently. But it hurts to have a baby. It hurts to bring a new life in the world. As a man, I have to be careful commenting on this. But I've been told that it's worse than any other pain that you could possibly imagine. Certainly anything that a man could imagine. It's extreme. But when a woman cries in the midst of labor, those cries of pain and suffering are of a whole different character than the kind of cries and pain that a person goes through when they're injured or diseased. Because those cries of pain are also filled with joy. Joy in knowing that this pain is productive. This pain is accomplishing something great. This pain is bringing about a new life to rejoice in. And that's the kind of cries of pain that the limping remnant makes as we walk in this fallen world. In verse 10, God's people are encouraged to writhe and groan over suffering in this world, over their sin and over the sins of others. It's almost like Micah is a midwife saying, push, push. Life is coming. Groan, writhe in pain, knowing that joy comes in the morning. You see, we are still living as exiles and sojourners, according to the New Testament. The gathering of the remnant is ongoing, and we rejoice as we look back over the last 20 centuries of how, since Christ has established this new Jerusalem, since the truth of the gospel has gone out, since seekers of truth have come from all nations, as we've watched the kingdom advance to the four corners of the earth, still we are living as sinners in a sin-filled world, and we are groaning as in labor. Doug made reference earlier to what Paul says in Romans 8 about groaning and labor. And here he puts our groaning in the context of the entire creation groaning. He says, beginning in verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. 
groaning in hope like a woman in labor. That's what our life looks like. We're not made to be happy. If you mean by that happy in the circumstances of this world. We're not to be happy in this fallen world with our sin and the sins of others all around us. But we are to be joyful as we groan like a woman in labor, knowing that deliverance is coming. We are to focus on that day, as Micah said to the church of his own day, there in your captivity you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. You see, we can't really be happy in the circumstances of this world because we are in the midst of a spiritual war. We're in the midst of a spiritual battle. And Babylon has always existed. The roots of Babylon, where Israel was to be taken in captivity, the roots of Babylon, as you know, go all the way back to the Tower of Babel. There, where sinful, self-reliant, prideful, defiant man built a tower to the stars as an acknowledgement of his own capability and his accomplishment, a symbol of man's pride and self-reliance and rebellion. And from that point on, Babel in Babylon has been the antithesis of the New Jerusalem, the church of Jesus Christ. It is a symbol of the authorities and culture of this rebellious world set up, up, setting itself against Christ and his kingdom. And that's why Micah says in verse 9, Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? These people were about to say, yes, our king is gone. But God is saying, you're never without your king. God was always the true king of his people. And God the Son was about to come as the eternal Son of David, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. When their prophets and priests and kings had let them down, the Lord was always still there. And they were to look to him. The Lord is on his throne and his plan is being worked out. Look at the, Micah makes reference to that plan in verses 11 and 12. He says, now many nations are assembled against you saying, let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. We understand that the kind of evil we witnessed this past week happens because Satan is real, he's active, and the forces of darkness are gaining in this part of the world, even while the kingdom advances both here and elsewhere. Our enemies want to defile Zion. When the enemies of Israel would destroy the city, the high point of their destruction in their mind was always to destroy the temple. And not just to tear down its stones, but to sacrifice pigs on the altar, to desecrate the altar. To put up symbols of pagan gods to desecrate the temple, to expose the Holy of Holies as a desecration. And that reveals the heart of those who are truly enemies of Christ's kingdom. They hate the holiness of God. And they hate the church when it reflects that holiness. Because it condemns their sin. They are offended in their sinfulness at the holiness of Christ and the holiness of the church. But the promise of Scripture is that when these enemies attack the faithful remnant, when the enemies attack the New Jerusalem, 
They will always fall into their own trap. That's a recurring theme through Scripture. Many of the Psalms talk about this. The enemies of God are always falling into their own trap. And ultimately, that is what happened at the cross. I love the language of Acts chapter 4, where the people of God are praying. And as part of that prayer, listen to what they say. For truly in this city, in the old Jerusalem, there were gathered together. Notice, they were gathered together. The Lord gathered them together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. You see, they were gathered against The king himself, the prophet, priest, and king, when he came to deliver his people, they thought they had defeated him at the cross, but instead they are handing him his ultimate victory. Because when he died on the cross, he died for us. And he paid the penalty for our sins. And when he was raised from the dead, he won the ultimate victory. Death is defeated. Satan is defeated. His head is crushed. And the church is delivered. Once and for all. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, his plan that we were talking about. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared For those who love him. So we've already won. Yes, the battle goes on. To mop up the victory. But the victory has been accomplished at the cross. And the limping, groaning remnant is being gathered from the four corners of the earth. But there is another day coming and we are to not lose focus on that day. That day is the the second gathering that we made reference to. And that's what Micah talks about at the end of chapter 4. The threshing to come. A threshing floor is always in Scripture an image, a symbol of judgment day. The threshing floor was where the sheaves, the bundles of wheat would be brought after the harvest had taken place. And then these sheaves, the stalks and the wheat on the stalks would be beaten or crushed to separate the worthless stalk from the grains of wheat. The small far- farmers would beat on the stalks of wheat in order to do the separation. Or maybe they would have their large animals like oxen trample across the wheat, the stalks of wheat, to do the separation. Bigger farmers would sometimes have what they call a threshing sledge that the oxen would pull to crush and separate the stalks from the wheat. But this has been, from the beginning of time, an image of what's going to happen on the end, at the end of the world. When Jesus Christ does come again, and He is coming again, there will be a separation of the wheat from the chaff. And so in verse 13, Micah says to the groaning, limping remnant, he says, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. They would be like the ox trampling out the wheat. 
And their horns and hooves, those are signs of strength and power and invincibility for an animal like that. And God would make them their horns iron and their hooves bronze. The church is invincible before the world. We cannot be defeated because of who our Lord is. This is what the book of Revelation is all about. I strongly recommend that you spend time in the book of Revelation. Don't let the imagery scare you off. Because it's given to us to give us hope. Because this battle between the dragon and the woman and the son born from the woman, this this battle has been going on since the Garden of Eden. It is going on in our day. We see it in what's happening in world events around us. And it will culminate in a day when the sun returns and the dragon is defeated and the wheat is separated from the chaff and the eternal kingdom, the perfect kingdom where justice and truth and joy and peace and prosperity is completed once and for all. It is coming. My good friend, and fellow pastor from Westchester, Pennsylvania, Dr. Stan Gale, wrote this yesterday. At a time of national tragedy, people, acutely helpless and desperately frantic for solutions, cry out for action. More laws. That's something we can do. Greater safeguards. That's something within our ability. We have to do something. But in their heart of hearts, they know evil persists. Sin remains. Danger lurks. Helplessness haunts. At a time of national tragedy, pastors launch into theodicy, a defense of God, amidst the inevitable diatribes of those reeling under the horror of the face of sin, desperate to affix blame, groping for sanity. Into this cacophony of angst, God speaks. He points us to a manger. He shows us his answer to the atrocities of the human heart. His solution to pervasive evil, small and great, near and far. There we see the Son of God who entered our sin-wracked world. Before him was a cross, the ultimate innocent, enduring the ultimate injustice, to bring deliverance and enduring hope far as the curse is found. There we find God's answer to life's atrocities, a solution purchased in love, wrapped in grace, offered in divine mercy and compassion. There is no hope for us or for the world outside of the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ explains everything. And it resolves everything. And it gives hope to those who will believe. We don't know how long this battle will go on. We don't need to know the, how, the answer to that question. What we need to know is what Micah tells us. Messiah has established the new Jerusalem. The place of truth and justice, peace and prosperity... And all who have faith in him from any nation are welcome to come. Jesus is crucified for our sins. He is raised from the dead and he is reigning at the right hand of God in heaven. And now 
the groaning, limping remnant is being gathered. And we are to fix our eyes on that day when our enemies, sin, death, Satan himself, will be destroyed. That's what we celebrate at this time of year. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the big picture perspective of Scripture. Not only to remind us of where things are going, but to strengthen our faith, to fix our attention upon the kingdom of Christ and upon his ultimate return. That is our hope. Thank you for opening our eyes to see it. Give us boldness. Give us a drive to share that message with others who need to hear it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.